As you're turning to Hosea 6, let's go ahead and pray and we'll ask the Lord to do in our hearts what he would like to do. Lord, we come to you today, humble people, knowing that, Lord, the Israelites, as far as we would prefer to have them as, a, as an antithesis of who we are, Lord, they are more often a, a mirror holding up our own sin to us. Lord, as we look at much of their sin, Lord, would you convict us of the sin in our lives? And as we see the hope that you have for them and the compassion and forgiveness that you have on them, Lord, may we also see the compassion and forgiveness that you have for us. Lord, we ask that you would come quickly, that you would no longer tarry. And Lord, we know that you are patient, that you are waiting that none might perish, but all come to a knowledge of Christ. So Lord, until that day that you do return for your church, may we not be found idle. May we continue to press on and press forward seeking to take hold of the prize to which you've called us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in 2017, and we're going to be in Hosea 6, unrelated things I just forgot to say, turn to Hosea 6. I'm telling you a story, and you're turning to Hosea 6, so you can turn and not listen. The, uh, a man was asleep in 2017, and that wouldn't be notable except for when he fell asleep, he was on a raft, and his raft wasn't tethered to anything. And so when he woke up, he had been adrift at sea. And by the time he woke up, he looked, and he no longer saw the shore. He no longer saw mountains. He no longer saw people. All he saw was the endless ocean. And for hours, he drifted. Certainly, we can assume that he had thoughts of death and thoughts of sharks and thoughts of all kinds of things until he floated close enough that he could start to see land. A current was pushing him into a bay. And after hours of being adrift, he saw people. And as thrilled as he was to see people, the people were less thrilled to see him because he had drifted through the Black Sea and into Russia. And the Russian military that came out to greet him were less than enthusiastic about him, potentially, in, in their mind, probably being a spy that set himself adrift to hope to wander into Russian territory and steal all of their secrets. The man obviously was not a, not a spy or anything. He just fell asleep and drifted past international waters and into Russia. So after interrogating him to ensure that he indeed was a regular person who got lost, they let him go and he went home. That story's kind of been in my mind for a long time because we often can be like that man where we are asleep and we are set adrift. And before we know it, we look around and our lives don't look like what we thought they would be. 
our tolerance for sin doesn't look like what it should be. And we've been asleep and adrift. You know, you pour a cup of coffee in the morning and it starts to cool pretty quickly. And it becomes lukewarm. It becomes just a room temperature cup of coffee. The Israelites had that exact problem in Hosea's day. They knew God, they knew what God wanted of them, but all too quickly, they would allow themselves to drift and wander from God. So as we look at that today, I want us to think that the Israelites often had misplaced trust in themselves. They had faith in their military might. They had faith in the idols that they worshiped. They had faith in all the things that were around them and often lacked a true faith in God. So the only path forward for them, the only path forward for us, if we find ourselves drifting out to sea, prone to wander away from God, is to forego our pride and turn to the Lord. Look at Hosea chapter 6. Starting in verse 4, it says, What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? Your love is like the morning mist, and like the early dew, it vanishes. This is why I have used the prophets to cut them down. I have killed them with the words from my mouth. My judgment strikes like lightning. Verse 6, For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. God says of his people that their love is like the morning mist, like an early dew that vanishes. It's superficial. It's temporary. It's like walking outside on a cold morning and breathing and you see your breath and then it's gone before the next breath gets out. When I was growing up, we didn't have the internet, and so we would wake up early almost every morning to turn on the TV to watch the little ticker go across the bottom, and we'd wait for it to get to M until it said Madeira Unified, so we could determine if we had to go to school that day. If it was going to be a foggy day schedule, it would say one hour delay or two hour delay. If we were really fortunate, a three hour delay. The best ever was a four-hour delay because I don't think we ever actually canceled school. Like, that was always our hope, like, school canceled, but it was always just, like, the hope of a, at least a couple-hour delay. Even if we didn't ride the bus, it was like, we're not going to school because nobody has to go to school. And then we'd have to go to school because my parents had to drop us off anyways, but we'd always hope for that foggy day schedule. And they knew that the fog would come and the fog would be gone. It was a quick morning mist. Sometimes it would settle in, but rarely. It was superficial. It was gone as soon as it came. And that's what God is saying of their love in verse 4, that their love is like the morning mist. For the Israelites, their drifting away from God was loveless actions. They would still perform the action that God required of them, but they did it in the wrong way with the wrong hearts. You see, God says in verse 6, 
For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice. The action that they would do is sacrifice. They would take their animal and offer it to God and turn around and worship an idol. They knew what God required of them, so they did the action and then went and did their own thing. They would not have the knowledge of God, but they would offer burnt offerings. They had that outward action that was empty and superficial, a mist that quickly disappears. Their sacrifices were like promises that wouldn't be kept. Their burnt offerings, reminiscent of their broken covenants. God says to them, I desire faithful love, the knowledge of God, not their empty actions. You know, taking that from the Israelites' day and into our day, that looks different for us. We don't give God animal sacrifices, but to do what God calls us to do is very similar. To do what God calls us to do is still needing to be done with the right heart, with the right intentions. God says to us that we are to love one another, that we are to show love to others. And if we do it with an improper heart, if we do it just out of the action and not the heart, God says, I desire faithful love. I desire the knowledge of God. And a faithful love is an ongoing, steadfast, continual love. It's not a a one-time action that God calls us to do. See, Israel had just been going through the motions. They would do what God required of them just as an action. They wanted an instant gratification. If they gave to God, they would want back from God almost immediately. And if they didn't get from God right after they gave to God, they would turn to an idol. Well, maybe if I give to this idol, I can get back what I want. They treated God like an ATM machine. ATM machines are things you put in a debit card and you get cash back from. They're like a, like a phone booth where you could call somebody. They're old. It's like an old Venmo or cash app where you could instantly get something back. And they wanted to go and put in their debit card with God and immediately get money back. And we're no different. Right? We live in a microwave society. We want to put in some flash-frozen meat-like product and get back this Thanksgiving spread that you see on TV. Like, that's the picture that America wants. That's our culture. Like, here's this Salisbury steak, and I want it to look thick and juicy and, like, really tasty. And you know it's not going to. But that's what we want. That's the picture of, I want to give this simple, worthless action to God, and I want God to give me this wonderful banquet. But our love is not shown through animal sacrifices. Our love is not shown through burnt offerings. Our love is shown through our knowledge of God, through our obedience to God, and to our love for others. If our love for God is shown both in our love for him and our love for his people and our love for the lost, it begs the question, 
how do we treat other people? For me, I asked this question of myself this week a number of times. In my frustration, am I patient with my kids? Or do I respond in anger? Am I willing to take the time to get down and talk to them, to explain to them what they did wrong, why it was wrong, what they need to do to make it right, how they need to pray to ask God to forgive them and then ask the other person to forgive them? Or do I just get frustrated because I've been inconvenienced? That's mine. Yours is probably different. How about when arguing with a spouse? Do you use gentle words or are you frustrated and use words that you will soon regret? With the holidays, how about extended family? A lot of people have extended family issues. Even if you're not 100% wrong, do you offer to apologize for the percentage that you've been wrong? Or are you stubborn and insist that the other person make it right? Showing love to others often costs us something. And it often is more than a superficial mist that comes and goes quickly. I think most of us have a morning mist and a dew that vanishes more often than we'd like. I've got 10 seconds of patience, and then I'm frustrated. Beyond that 10 seconds, if you can make it right, then we'll be good. But outside of this patient window, outside of this loving window, then we lash out. Listen to what John says in 1 John. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the person who does not love his brother or sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And we have this command from him. The one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. There's three steps there. God loved us, so we love God, and then we love others. Everything outside of that is a mist that quickly vanishes. Because if we don't know the love of God, we don't know how to love others. And if we don't know the love of God, then we won't be able to love others. But if we know that God loves us and we love God, then the natural outflowing of that would be love for others. Now, the Israelites had this problem of not loving God in the way that God wanted them to love. They would love him just with their actions, and that was the end of it. The way that was shown throughout their lives were different over time. From chapters 7 through 10, and even a little bit beyond, we have Hosea giving example after example of what the Israelites were like, what their sin was like, often why it offended God, and then even sometimes their immediate and future judgment because they did not love God with a faithful love, because they did not have the knowledge of God. So we're going to look at some sections here in verses or in chapters 7 through 10. And I want you to see where some of these might 
resonate in your life? For me, they almost all resonate in some way or another. And I think if you have a desire of faithful love for God, a knowledge of God, and the desire to live the way that Christ calls us to, I think you'll see that there are ways that you are also prone to wander. You know, I, I asked Jerry to sing that song, Come Thou Fount, because I love that line, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. I feel that way. Like I, I have a love for God, but I also feel prone to wander. I feel prone to drift out to sea. And I don't think the Israelites were wicked, horrible people all the time. I think they were prone to wander. I think we would look back in, you know, verse 7 of chapter 6, Hosea starts, he says, but they like Adam. He says, you don't have a faithful love, you don't have the knowledge of God. And then he immediately says, and they're like Adam. He, he goes all the way back to the beginning, and he says, in the perfect garden paradise, Adam was prone to wander. And then come into Hosea's day, and clearly they are prone to wander. And lest we think highly of ourselves, we can fast forward again and get to today and know that we are also prone to wander. It's the human proclivity. It's the human likelihood of if we are not fixed and devoted to God that we are prone to wander. So let's look at a couple of ways that the Israelites were prone to wander. Chapter 7, verses 4 and 5. All of them commit adultery. They are like an oven heated by a baker who stops stirring the fire from the kneading of the dough until it's leavened. On the day of our king, the princes are sick with the heat of wine. There is a conspiracy with the traitors. See, they, they first want to say that they are in control. That they can do what they need to do because they know best. They need the dough. They let the dough rise. But in the meantime, they've stopped turning the coals. They've stopped heating the fire. So when the bed, bread's ready to bake, the fire has cooled. But they know best because they're in control. And then in verse 5, the princes are sick with the heat of wine. Their leaders are now drunk and incapable of taking care of the people. They have this picture of the bottle and the brothel, the sauce and the sex. They go hand in hand, almost always. These uncontrolled and unbridled passions almost always get people into trouble. And yet they're in control. Don't worry about it. I've got this under control. If you've ever told someone, I can stop, if I wanted to, I can stop. If you ever told yourself that, I can stop whatever that sin is anytime I want because I'm in control, then you're not. It's a false belief that we have too often that I'm in control. And Galatians says, I say then walk by the Spirit. 
Walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These two, the Spirit and the flesh, are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. The Spirit, God's working in our lives and our fleshly desires, are directly opposed to each other. And the result of that, so that you don't do what you want. You're adrift with no paddle and saying you're in control. The man without a paddle in the middle of the Black Sea is nowhere in control of anything. He's at the mercy of whatever wave or current or tide comes, and he goes wherever the Lord blows the wind to direct him. Verse 8, Hosea 7, 8, says, Ephraim has allowed himself to get mixed up with the nations. Ephraim is unturned bread baked on a griddle. The Israelites had this false devotion. They would say, I am devoted to God. Hosea pictures it like this loaf of bread that they're baking. And when they would bake bread, they would bake it on hot coals with some kind of griddle on top, either a rock or some kind of um, flat surface that would cook the bottom. So the top would start to get golden brown by the time the bottom was fully burnt. Our ovens often cook from the top and the bottom, so we don't have to turn bread like they would. What Hosea is saying is, you might look good on the top, but you're burned on the bottom. You're like bread that hasn't been turned. You look like your actions, but we know what's really underneath. God does not want to eat the burnt bread. Matthew says, no one can serve two masters, since he will either hate the one and love the other or be devoted to one and despise the other. Hosea is saying, you want to act like you are devoted to God, but really you're just devoted to your sin. Chapter 7, verse 10, Hosea continues into a picture of denial. He says, Israel's arrogance testifies against them, yet they do not return to the Lord their God, and for all this, they do not seek him. I'll be just fine on my own. I've got it. Nothing's the problem. Everything's right. I've got this on my own. Right? The forever optimist is always in control. It's all going to work out. It's going to be fine. And Israel's arrogance is what is telling them it will all be fine. Israel's arrogance testifies against them. You will not be fine. On our own, we will, none of us will be fine. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So on our own, we can live in denial, and yet our arrogance testifies against us as well. Verse 14 says, though, or they do not cry to me from their hearts, rather they wail on their beds and slash themselves for grain and new wine, and they turn away from me. I would say of most of these, this one is probably the most culturally acceptable because the people in Israel's day, they would continue to put out more effort. So they would keep striving and I can do more. 
if I try harder, if I sacrifice more to the idols, if I cut and slash myself, if I keep doing, then I will succeed. If I do more, then I will be right. Jesus says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. All the trying, all the working, all the effort comes to nothing if you are cut off from the vine. And then in chapter 8, look at verse 2, where it says, Israel cries out to me, my God, we know you. And then in verse 10, it says, even though they hire lovers among the nations, I will now round them up. They will begin to decrease in number under the burden of the kings and leaders. We know you, God. But then they go out and do exactly what God says not to do. Don't make alliances. Don't hire lovers among the nations is what God tells them. But they claim that they know God. And in that, they're saying we don't really need God. We're independent. We've got this. We can do it on our own. We don't need God because we can trust in ourselves. And Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Our independence is an independence from God. Back in chapter eight, verse four, it says, they have installed kings, but not through me. They have appointed leaders, but without my approval. They make their silver and gold into idols for themselves, for their own destruction. I know better than God. God tells them, don't make idols. Don't worship the golden calves. Don't worship what the neighbors are worshiping. Don't be like the other people. And they install their own kings. They worship these other things. They make silver and gold idols. And they presume that they know better than God. Verse 5, they show their arrogance. Your calf idol is rejected, Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of innocence? My way is better than God's way. They make a calf idol and want that to be their offering to God. They give this now idol to God and God rejects their idol And for us, idolatry is different, like we've talked about. It's not a gold and silver idol. But whatever's on the throne is what we worship. And a lot of times what we worship is ourselves. We sit on our own throne, and we make offerings to God, but we lack humility, we lack a love for God, and we offer these things out of arrogance One more, we'll look at chapter 9, verse 15. This is Israel's rebellion against God. He says, All of their evil appears at Gilgal, where I began to hate them. I will drive them from my house because of their evil, wicked actions, and I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. They had this idea that 
that they had no other choice. They rebelled against God because God did not give them what they wanted. They had to eat, they had to survive, they had to make alliances, they had to worship and offer sacrifices to the idols. They had to do all of these things because God hadn't provided in the way and in the time that they wanted. You know, I love the story of, of the prophet Nathan when he comes to David and he tells David a story about a man who had gone to a, a poor farmer and said, you know, this rich man says, I, I need your baby lamb that you love for a sacrifice. And the, the rich man could get a lamb anywhere, but he takes the poor man's lamb. And the story is often about David. You know, Nathan says to David, you know, well, David says to Nathan, you know, we should kill that man. He's a wicked man, and Nathan says, you are that man. But if you think about it from Nathan's perspective, he's a prophet telling the king that your wickedness is worth death. Certainly, Nathan had better options. Certainly, Nathan could have found a way that he didn't have to confront and rebuke the king who held his life in his hand. David easily could have just killed Nathan and found a new prophet. But Nathan was willing to say, this is God's way that God has called me to, and for better or worse, I'll do what God has called me to do. Rebellion to Nathan didn't seem like an acceptable option. But God says in verse 15, I will drive them from my house because of their evil, wicked actions, and I will no longer love them. All their leaders are rebellious. You know, many of these are worldly truths. You can hear those kinds of things every day on college campuses, every day in the offices of counselors and psychologists. You can read about them in self-help books. I can, I will visualize your truth and your truth will be your reality. And all of these things that the Israelites struggled with, all of their sin have one thing in common. It's all about them. Their pride overwhelmed them so that the little bit of love that they gave to God was a mist of an action. It was a fleeting thought. And it was all, I can, I will, this is what's best for us. And they sought out their pride as often as they could. You know, Hosea, he starts this section of judgment by going back to Adam. And you remember when Adam and Eve were in the garden and the serpent comes. Right, if you go even farther back to the serpent, Satan wanted to be like God. He was prideful and said, I want to be in charge. I know better than God. If I were ruling heaven, and God kicked him out of heaven because of his pride. And then he comes to Adam and Eve, and he says, you can be just like God. And in their pride... Well, I can be like God? That sounds pretty good. 
I'd want to be like God. And their pride gets the better of them. So then when God comes to Adam and Eve, you remember, nobody's at fault here, right? Adam and Eve are like as quick to pass the buck as they can. The serpent deceived me. Not my fault. It was that serpent that deceived me. And Adam's like, not my fault. The woman that you gave me. She's, I mean, that's really God's fault. And nobody wants to have any kind of acceptance here. Nobody wants to submit themselves to God and recognize that it was their own pride. You know, today an individual accumulates debt. And we want to blame the credit card companies for offering more debt than they should have offered to me. We look for somebody else to put the blame on so that we don't have to swallow our pride and be humble. A student blames his teacher for not teaching the test well instead of acknowledging that I should have just studied more. A marriage cites irreconcilable differences, and yet nobody's willing to humble themselves to actually reconcile their differences. As long as it's not my fault, then everything's fine. And the Israelites looked away from God and they looked to what they didn't have and what they couldn't do and what God called them to not do. And so they constantly were having this comparison between self and God's desires. And their self would win every time. Throughout these, these chapters, there's kind of this regular picture of the idea of planting and harvesting. One of my favorites is you have sown, you've planted the wind, and you've reaped a whirlwind. And God's telling them, your actions will have consequences. What you plant is what you will gather. What you do is what you will harvest. So what do we plant? What are we planting and what are we harvesting? Listen to what John says again. He says, this is the message in 1 John 1, 5 through 9. This is the message that we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light and there is absolutely no darkness in him. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet we walk in the darkness, we are lying and not practicing the truth. If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you've been walking in darkness, if you've been prone to wander, if you've been adrift in sin that has continued to plague you, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Pride and confessing our sins are mutually exclusive. 
Because if we come to God in pride, then we'll never confess our sins. Because a confession of our sins means that we are telling God, I have done the wrong thing. I have sinned against you. What you've told me not to do, I've done it. But pride won't allow us to do that. Pride always wants us to blame somebody else or blame the situation or blame whatever else could possibly have been reasonable. But John says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The only solution to stopping the wandering, to stopping the drifting into sin is to confess our sins and trust and have faith in God's ability and desire to forgive us of those sins. In these two sections here, this, the beginning in chapter 6 and the, the end as we get into chapter 11, they, they kind of have this picture of, a, of book ends together. Chapter 6, verse 4 starts with, what am I going to do with you, Ephraim? And then chapter 11, in verse 8, it says, how can I give you up, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you? God asks his people. What am I going to do with you? And then he spends chapters detailing all of their sin, detailing the way that they've worshipped idols, detailing all of the sins that they have committed, the ways that they've walked away from him. What am I going to do with you? And then he asks rhetorically in verse 8, how can I give you up? How can I surrender you, Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat like Zeboam? I've had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred. Not what they deserve. Hosea spent chapters listing what they actually deserve. The impending judgment. Why does God offer them compassion? Why does he offer them a change of heart and have his compassion stirred? Because of verse 9. I will not vent the full fury of my anger. I will not turn my back to destroy Ephraim. For I am God and not man, the Holy One among you. I have tried all week to put that into better words. I have no better words for God's forgiveness and compassion, his willingness to say, even though you deserve judgment, I'm willing to have compassion. I've had a change of heart. There's no explanation outside of, for I am God and not man. What I would do is all of the things listed in chapters 7, 8, 9, 10, even into 11, 12, and 13. Because I am a man and not God. I don't have an endless compassion. I don't have patience that goes forever. I'm not willing to forgive injustice at times. For I am a man and not God. The reason that God can do this is because he is God and not man. The difference is seemingly simple, but it's an endless chasm of difference between us and God. He is not a holy one. He is the holy one. He is not another idol that they can put in their homes. He is the holy one. 
And you see, despite all of their covenant breaking, despite their lack of knowledge, despite their love for him that's a mist that's already gone, he is faithful. He keeps his covenant. He remains unshakable. He does not drift. He does not wander. And then what does he call them and us to do? Look at verse 10. They will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will follow the Lord. His roar is like a lion. And when he roars, his children will come. The call of compassion is the roar like a lion. The call of compassion goes back to the wayward Israelites in chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him and I called him out of Egypt. Same thing that Matthew says in Matthew chapter 2, out of Egypt, speaking of Jesus, I called my son. And when God calls, he calls like a lion and he calls the sick, Jesus says, who need a doctor. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. I call the sick. So he calls the innocent that need protecting. He calls for a party when the prodigal son returns. He calls for the one lost sheep. He calls home the one who is prone to wander, the one drifting out to sea. And when he roars, his children will come. Maybe you've never heard that before. Maybe you've never heard God's, God's identification of your sin and all the things that you've done. But then also the compassion that says, I don't hold it against you. I still call you. I still forgive you. If you've never known that love of God that although you sin, although you wander, that he still loves you, today's a good day to say, I want to know who God is. I don't want to just offer these sacrifices of attending church or picking up my Bible from time to time or praying before a meal. For I desire faithful love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God and not burnt offerings. I want to truly know who God is. Today's a day for you to say, this is what I want. And then if you've known God's call and you've heard God's call, man, you're out in the middle of the sea God's call is like a, a roar of a lion that calls you back. Life is full of distractions. There's a thousand things right now that you can have on your mind. And God calls, and he, he doesn't often overwhelm those other voices. He just says, come. And get rid of all of those other distractions. You can scroll some other time. But I desire a faithful love. I desire for you to know me. 
And he calls home the wayward. He calls home his own. God speaks to us through his word. These things were written so that you may know that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that you may have life in him. These things were written in Hosea as a warning for us, as a way for us to say, I desire a knowledge of God. Here's the guardrail, and here's the guardrail. How does my life match what the Israelites were doing? Or how does my life go in the opposite direction? Do I struggle with these things of pride? Am I self-confident? Or do I place my confidence in Christ? Because if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I can't tell you how thankful I am for that verse because I'm in constant need of that. I'm in constant need of, I shouldn't have done that. I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have felt that way or thought that thing or acted like that. I know if I confess my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify and cleanse us from our own unrighteousness. Just like he was for them. I've had a change of heart. My compassion is stirred for I am God and not man. That's the God we serve. The knowledge of God that we have is we are different than he is. He is God and not man. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the confidence that you give us, a confident assurance that you are steady, that when we drift, that you're not adrift, that when we wander, you have not moved. You are the rock. In you can we raise our Ebenezer, our stone of remembering, the place that we can come to because you don't move. Lord, I'd ask that you would convict us of our sin, encourage us in the ways that we do worship you, that we do have a knowledge of you. Lord, give us a hope that goes beyond what we see in front of us, a hope beyond the world's travails, beyond the news that's on. Lord, give us a hope this Christmas season that it's, it's beyond the, the, tan, the tangible that we see and the, the things that we feel. Lord, my feelings often betray me. Lord, I want to I hope that goes beyond. Lord, give us that hope this year. As we celebrate the advent of Christ, a new beginning for humanity, a forgiveness of sins, a compassion that's been stirred, Lord, help us to remember that you are God and not man. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.